This week, finally solving the mystery of how thirst works. Classic studies that suggested some mechanism for the tracking of water consumption were performed almost 100 years ago. Our recordings in mice from these thirst neurons provide an explanation for how that works. And ditch the parenting manuals, what science says about how children really learn. What we've discovered is that children are learning a great deal without needing to be taught. Plus building a programmable quantum computer to handle more than a single algorithm. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 4th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker. First up, we... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry. Ah, that's much better. Thirsty? Yeah, I was parched, yeah. Quick quiz. What do you think made you thirsty? Probably all this talking we have to do on the podcast. Well, maybe, yes. But how did you know you were thirsty? And for that matter, how did you know when your thirst was quenched? I don't know, but I have a feeling you might be about to tell me. Absolutely. Luckily for you, that's a question which Zachary Knight and his colleagues from the University of California, San Francisco, have been investigating. You might think that we've discovered how thirst works decades ago, and partially you'd be right, but Zachary's team have been questioning the standard explanation. There's been a textbook model for how uh, thirst works that's been around for a long time, uh, in some aspects almost 100 years. And the idea is that thirst is controlled by the blood. So uh, we become thirsty uh, either because our blood becomes too salty, uh, basically the osmolarity rises, or uh, because our blood volume falls. And um, there are specialized neurons in the brain that lie outside the blood-brain barrier and that can directly detect these changes in the osmolarity uh, or volume of the blood, and then they trigger the sensation of thirst. This model makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't explain everything. What that model explains is sort of the slow developing of thirst that occurs with water deprivation. Okay? But what it doesn't explain is uh, aspects of thirst that are regulated much more rapidly during eating and drinking. Uh, so, for example, you know, when you're thirsty um, and you drink a glass of water, you can, of course, feel your sensation of thirst be quenched within seconds. But we know that it takes 10 to 20 minutes for that water you ingested to reach the blood and actually change the osmolarity or volume of your blood. And so the question is, how is it that your thirst can be quenched so quickly, even though there's this long delay? And how is it that you know exactly how much you need to drink, even though there's going to be this delay before your physiologic deficit is corrected? And that's sort of what has not been explained. Knight and his team decided to look more closely at the brain in an attempt to solve this long-standing mystery. There are uh, a couple brain regions that have been known uh, for, for a long time to be critical for the generation of thirst, and they directly sense the, uh, the, the volume and osmolarity of the blood. And because of just certain technical reasons about where these neurons are located in the brain, they're deep within the brain, no one had ever recorded their activity in a living animal and asked what happens to these thirst neurons uh, when a living animal is eating and drinking. Knight set up an experiment to do just that in mice. In the experiment, thirsty mice were given a nice drink. As they lapped up the water, Knight monitored both the amount of water they were drinking, using a fantastically named piece of kit called a lycometer, and the activity of their thirst neurons. So when a mouse is thirsty, these thirst neurons are very active. The mouse goes and, and drinks. And, and our prediction would have been that essentially as the mouse drinks, you would slowly see this change in the activity of these thirst neurons over tens of minutes as the water is absorbed and enters the blood. But what we actually found was that these, these thirst neurons respond very rapidly to drinking within seconds. Each time the mouse takes a lick of water, it drives down the activity of these thirst neurons. This allows the mice to monitor water intake in quite a clever way. 
what we think this allows these neurons to do is essentially make a comparison between the water that's entering through the oral cavity, uh, which is counted by counting each lick, and then the need for water in the blood, which these neurons are monitoring in parallel. And so they compare those two things, and that allows these neurons to essentially shut down their activity and quench your sensation of thirst very rapidly as you drink in anticipation of uh, what the water is going to do when it's absorbed. By suppressing these neurons, sensors in the oral cavity, or mouth to you and me, allow the mouse to know more than just when it's had enough to drink. They tell these thirst neurons when the mouse is drinking that the thirst neurons' activity should go down by tracking the amount of water that the mouse has consumed. But they also do the opposite when the mouse is eating, which is going to create a need for water because the the food that's being eaten will eventually be absorbed and enter the bloodstream and increase the osmolarity of the blood. When that's happening, these sensors in the oral cavity send a signal to these thirst neurons to increase their activity to essentially anticipate the, the need for water that's going to arise. Knight and his team, however, don't exactly know which of the plethora of sensors we have in our mouth are having this effect on the thirst neurons. They decided to focus on one type of sensory input in particular, though. There's this very well-known phenomenon that uh, cold drinks are more thirst-quenching. So we asked whether perhaps this anticipatory mechanism that we had discovered, um, whether that in part relies on temperature of the mouth. It turns out it did. This process by whereby these thirst neurons would count every lick of water and decrease their activity, that process was highly temperature dependent. So the colder the water was, the more the activity of these thirst neurons went down with each lick. That also means they were able to trick the mice. The way we did that was by applying a a cold piece of metal to a thirsty mouse's tongue while we're recording the activity of these thirst neurons. And what we found was that simply cooling the tongue of the mouse was sufficient to drive down the activity of these thirst neurons. And that didn't occur in control experiments where you applied the exact same piece of metal that was room temperature. There's more work to be done to find out exactly which sensors have which effect. But Knight says that it's likely this system is how thirst is regulated in humans too. It would be very surprising if it didn't. Um, the, the brain structures and the neurons that we're studying, uh, these are evolutionarily conserved all the way um, through humans. Um, and you know, some of the, the classic studies that suggested some mechanism uh, must exist like this for the tracking of water consumption were performed in other species like dogs almost 100 years ago. And so our recordings in mice from these thirst neurons provide an explanation for how that works. That was Zachary Knight. You can read that paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Before we get on to the next segment, we'd like to take a moment to apologise for the technical difficulties some listeners have experienced with the last two episodes. Some sections were silent when played through mono speakers. We think we've now got to the bottom of this issue. If you were affected, head over to nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast to download that updated MP3s. And thanks to the keen-eared listeners who got in touch to let us know. Still to come in the research highlights, helpful humpbacks and ketone sports drinks. But before that, Charlotte Stoddart finds out what science tells us about how children learn and how acting like children could make us better scientists. As a mother, I want to help my baby to learn about the world. I want to be a good parent. That's my 15-month-old daughter. We're looking at a book about animals. Sometimes I worry about how I should talk to her or how we should play together. There's the lion. 
Lauren was hiding. For people like me, there are thousands of books on parenting, offering a bewildering array of advice. Alison Gopnik thinks most of these books are too prescriptive and don't take account of what scientific studies tell us about how children learn. She describes herself as a grandmother who runs a cognitive science lab. Her lab is at the University of California, Berkeley. In a new book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, she sets out her anti-parenting perspective. I called Alison to find out what it is that most parenting books get wrong. Well, the basic kind of model that comes out of parenting books and the parenting industry in general is a picture where if you just do the right kinds of things, if you get the right kind of expertise and the right kind of training, then you'll be able to shape a child into a particular kind of grown-up. And from a scientific perspective, that's just a totally wrong-headed picture about what parents and children are like. And from a philosophical perspective, it's a misguided uh, picture too. Are there then scientific studies that um, show us that this shaping parenting approach doesn't work? Well, essentially what the studies show is that childhood experience can be extremely important for later life. But the small sort of differences, which are the ones that middle-class parents obsess over, like, you know, do you put the child in the stroller facing front or facing back? Those kinds of differences, which are the source of enormous tension for uh, parents, there's no evidence that any of that makes much of a difference in the long run. So what do we know about what makes a difference, about how children learn? Well, part of what's happened is that over the last 30 years, we've discovered more about how young children's, babies and young children's minds work than we ever knew before. And one of the discoveries has been that babies and young children learn more than we ever would have thought was possible before. And again, when people hear that, they often think, oh, if they learn so much, then we should teach them more. But that's just the opposite of the message that comes from actually studying that learning. And what we've discovered is that children are learning a great deal without needing to be taught. So children are very sensitive to the information that they get from other people, from the world, from the natural experiments that they do when they play. And they integrate that information in a very sophisticated way. How do you actually go about studying how they learn in your lab? Can you give me an example of an experiment that you do? So we did an experiment as one of our uh, experiments trying to figure out how children understand statistics and causality. And the way the experiment worked was that the uh, experimenter would do a series of actions on a toy. And sometimes the toy would light up and play music and sometimes it wouldn't. And the secret was that although she always did three different things, some of the things were necessary to make the toy light up and some of them weren't. So for example, if you observed carefully, you'd realize that uh, she had to pull the tab and then shake the toy to make it, that would make it go. But all the other things that she did really didn't make any difference. And what we discovered was that the children were very good at figuring that out. And when it was their turn to make the toy go, they wouldn't do all the unnecessary things. They would just do the right things. But that only happened when the experimenter said, I don't know how my toy works. Let's figure it out. I've never seen this toy before. We did a different version of the experiment. Now the experimenter said, I'm going to show you my toy. This is how it works. And then perform the actions. And in that version of the experiment, the children always just imitated exactly what she did. So instead of being innovators, they were imitators. And there's a lot of other experiments that suggest the same thing. So again, paradoxically, actually 
directed teaching can be limiting. It can narrow the range of options that children are considering. Is the way that children learn different from the way that we learn as adults? Well, one of the ideas that I talk about quite a bit in the book is an idea that is actually in neuroscience and in computer science. And that's the idea that there's a trade-off between two different kinds of learning. And they talk about this as a difference between explore and exploit learning. So if you're trying to get something done, if you're focused, if you have a particular goal, exploit learning means figuring out just the things that you need to do to get that particular goal accomplished as effectively as you can in the near term. But that's very different from the kind of explore learning where you don't have any particular goal in mind. You just want to kind of range around and try as many different things as possible, explore as many possibilities as you can. And there's an intrinsic trade-off between those two. So you can't be narrow and focused and goal-driven and think up a million different weird, strange ideas, both at the same time. And in a way, childhood seems to be evolution's way of resolving that trade-off. Childhood gives you a period where you can do this kind of explore learning before you actually have to go out and do the exploit learning. But I wonder if there are some situations when, as adults, we could really benefit from thinking like children. Um, I do think that grown-ups can take the time to be like four-year-olds, to just imagine, play around, try different kinds of possibilities. I was talking to um, a theoretical physicist the other day who was talking about the kind of impasse that people seem to have reached in physics. And he said he thought the physicists just have to try believing something that's impossible uh, every morning for breakfast without even thinking necessarily that it's going to solve the problem. Just play for the next 10 years if they're going to get out of this impasse. And I think that's exactly, of course, what children are doing all the time. That was Alison Gopnik from the University of California, Berkeley. Her book is called The Gardener and the Carpenter. To find out what that title means, go to nature.com forward slash nature and read our review. Stay tuned for the news chat. News editor Celeste Beaver gives us the lowdown on Olympic research, as well as some good news for you X-ray astronomers out there. But now it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Corrie Look. There are animals in the sea that can count on humpback whales to come to their rescue. These animals, such as seals and sea lions, are a popular menu item for killer whales. Researchers have found that humpback whales will sometimes help out the seals and sea lions by harassing the killer whales, allowing their prey to escape. The scientists looked at reports of more than 100 interactions between humpback and killer whales. They found at least 30 cases of humpbacks mobbing the killer whales as they were attacking or feeding on prey. The humpbacks don't seem to benefit from this, so the researchers think that this could be an example of animal altruism. The study is in the journal Marine Mammal Science. During long bouts of exercise, the body makes a fast-acting biochemical fuel called ketones to provide cells with a quick boost. It turns out that a drink containing ketones can increase athletes' physical endurance. Researchers gave athletes this drink, then asked them to ride a stationary bicycle for one to two hours they found that the athlete's metabolism had changed. They burned less glucose and more fat. This allowed the athletes to cycle more than 400 meters further in a 30-minute time trial than those who didn't drink any ketones. You can find the study in the journal Cell Metabolism. Quantum computers have the potential to be game changers. 
their quantum bits, or qubits, can exist in many possible states at once. This means that they could speed through certain calculations much faster than their regular counterparts. But it's still early days. We're a long way off a quantum PC. The largest quantum computer today, a thousand qubit machine made by Canadian company D-Wave, can only use its power to solve one type of problem. There are computers designed to solve a huge range of problems, but at the moment, to solve different problems, you often have to tweak their hardware. But now, physicists at the University of Maryland in the States have made a programmable quantum computer. You can change the problem it solves without changing its hardware. Reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to Shantanu Devnat and began by asking how physicists have been designing their quantum computers so far. They have been targeting their system to address maybe one algorithm at a time. For example, I would choose if I want to factorize the number 15, um, then I know exactly what the circuit needs to look like and I can uh, fabricate my system such that it does that calculation for, for, for that circuit. It's still quantum and it does the job, uh, but my system can only do that. What if I were in your lab and looking at your quantum computer, what actually would it look like? It would look like a 12 feet by 7 feet big uh, optics table. And in the middle of it, you would see a vacuum chamber that is uh, storing the five qubits. And you would see a lot of lasers in there. And then you'll see a bunch of wires that are going to all these uh, classical controllers, these oscillators and generators. And in the end, uh, of all those wires. You will find a box which contains a microprocessor maybe, uh, which, we, uh, which basically processes the low-level end of the code and communicates with a classical computer. It's a desktop that we are typing in the algorithm into. So your quantum computer at the moment is still pretty tiny. I think it's um, five qubits. But tell me about the system and what it can do that's different to, to other systems out there. Oh, so we use uh, atomic qubits. And the atom we use is of the element ytterbium. If you are to implement any quantum algorithm, you can always break down the algorithm into fundamental logic operations. Um, so in our system, what we can do is we can program uh, these fundamental or native operations. Um, so that, that is something that is really nice because then that gives the reconfigurability uh, which allows us to implement more than one algorithm. So when we, when we had the system working, um, we looked at all the pr algorithms that has been done before and we wanted to, on specific systems and we wanted to go ahead and um, pick many of those and try to run it on one system. So even though you're limited in the number of qubits you have because they can, you can address each one individually and they can all talk to each other, that, that means that you can actually run lots of, a whole bunch of different algorithms on it. Uh, yes, uh, in practice, yes. And so presumably to run even more useful algorithms, you'll need to scale the computer up a bit. How easy will that be to do? It should be easy in theory, but in practice uh, it requires a lot of engineering. Um, so one aspect of trapped ion systems is developing uh, the ion trap itself. And uh, there are national labs and um, private industries um, that are um, investing a lot of money and doing research in developing these sort of traps. So once you get nice traps which are fabricated very well and behave very well, um, you should, in principle, be able to trap, let's say, 100 ions or 200 ions in a single processor. 
And even if that is not enough, then you can uh, come up with multi-zone ion traps where you can have uh, many, many processing modules which can be connected by simply shuttling the ions around so that they can talk to each other. The thing is that all these individual um, tools have been demonstrated. Uh, separately on small scale. Um, the question now is just to bring all these things together. Well, right now we've got this very small but programmable quantum computer, but still a ways off to having the, the real thing. When do you think that will be? It's the question I've got to ask, sorry. Uh, so I think within like the next 10 years or 20 years, we'll definitely have a multi-qubit multi uh, quantum processors based on ions, um, and uh, that's also that's going to have a system integration of all the controls and the readout techniques that you need uh, to probe and measure the quantum states. Ten to twenty years. Okay, I'll uh, I'll come back to you then. Yeah, I hope that there is something really working as nicely as I claim it to be. Shantanu Daibnat from the University of Maryland, USA. Want to know more about Shantanu's programmable quantum computer? Check out the paper plus the news and views in the usual place. Time now for our weekly news chat and Celeste Beaver joins us in the studio. Hi, Celeste. Hi there. So the Olympics start this Saturday, 6th of August. What do the Games have to do with research? Well, from drug scandals, pollution problems, the capabilities of athletes, there's tons and tons of science in the Olympic Games. And as a news team, we decided to have a look at that not just by looking at individual pieces of research or talking to individuals, but by looking across all the literature that's been published over the decades about Olympics. Well, firstly, how do you define a paper that's on the Olympics? We um, just looked for anything that had Olympics or Olympics Games in the abstract or in the title of the paper and use that as the basis for our search, which brings in a few things that might be quite loosely related to the Olympics, but over the full statistics that we were looking at, thought we thought this would uh, give us some interesting ideas about what's going on in Olympic science. Good to cast a wide net, I guess, as well. Um, but what fields came out on top? What fields carry out the most research that references the Olympic Games? Social sciences was the most popular field with over a thousand papers published since the 1950s. Um, and then in second place was medicine with almost 900 papers and in third place engineering uh, with 500 papers. And we thought this was pretty interesting. It wasn't necessarily what you would expect. You might think it would be more about physiology, medicine, drugs. But it turns out that the Olympics often have a big impact on the city where they happen and that this can give scientists and social scientists a way to sort of look at a city before and after and during the Olympics. Things like if, the, for example, in Beijing, um, the government brought in restrictions on air pollution that were completely unique. And so they were able to study the effects of those restrictions through the Olympics. Now, you didn't just break it down by what subject it was, also by which Olympic Games they were referring to specifically. What patterns did you notice there? Yeah, we looked at um, which which games sparked the most science. And just as a kind of background, we also looked at how many papers had been published over the decades since the 1950s um, and what portion of all scientific papers were about the Olympics and how that changed. Because we wanted to account for whether there was just an increase in papers in general, which we know there has been. And it's true that Olympic science has sort of exploded over the past few decades. So a much larger portion of all science is about the Olympics. 
And then against that, we did look at individual games. Um, and while in general, there was a sort of upward trend as, as you went on with the games, so the more recent games tend to have a lot more papers, there's a particular spike at Beijing in 2008. So it has the most papers written about it. Um, and then London in 2012 is actually in second place. In terms of all papers, what were the papers which kind of were podium positions, which had the most, I guess, citations is uh, what you'd, you'd award a paper based on? The most highly cited papers, there were two at the top. Um, the, ones, the, the one with the most citations was on the uh, Atlanta Olympics um, in 1996, followed very closely by one on the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008. Um, and they were both about air pollution. Let's move on now to a second story of the week, which is uh, JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. We covered the Hitomi disaster a few weeks ago on the show, which involved uh, a satellite launched by Japan, um, which sp- sp- effectively spun itself to death. What is JAXA hoping to do to um, to replace to replace the Hitomi satellite, or do they have some other plans? This week, um, it came out that NASA and JAXA were in talks um, for what to do next because this satellite was going to serve the entire X-ray astronomy community. So NASA said it is considering that it might resurrect um, the X-ray spectrometer, which was at the heart of Hitomi, and work on another mission to relaunch a very similar instrument. They've said that they would try and launch it no later than 2023. What do other agencies currently think think of JAXA's involvement, are people blaming JAXA for this this disaster involving Hitomi? Well, JAXA has itself done a lot of soul searching and, and certainly does blame itself um, because it was a software error and they were responsible for the mission. And they've, they've done an awful lot of soul searching, it turns out, and even gave their staff a 10% pay cut for nine months to um, sort of, as they put it, express regret and caution um, over the disaster and it, it all comes against the backdrop of a bunch of failed missions from Japan, from JAXA. Uh, even this year, we we saw a rescue of the Akatsuki spacecraft, which was supposed to go into orbit around Venus years ago, um, didn't make it. And then this year, they had the opportunity to rescue it and put it, put it into the orbit, although it was actually a, a different orbit, not the one they'd originally attended, but still... And orbit, and and they successfully managed to do that. And another one, another failure that got loads of attention was Hayabusa, which was which landed on an asteroid in two thousand five, but then suffered problems with fuel leaks, um, at, that ended up endangering the mission. But actually, in all cases, or those two cases at least, um, Japan has shown at the same time a sort of remarkable ability to salvage some science from these missions. And even with Hitomi, they managed to squeeze out a science paper um, that. It did gather enough data to to publish something before it spun out of control. What what kind of time frame would we be looking at if you want if you'd originally wanted all this data from Hitomi? How long might you be waiting until something else is up there getting getting that data to you? Right now, this is very early stage discussions, and um, the news really is that NASA is interested in this. It's maybe not. Like a huge surprise, but no one had talked about resurrection before this point. So no one really knew what was going to happen next, whether that was going to come back um, or whether that would just be it. So 
It's exciting that NASA is showing even preliminary interest in helping JAXA to resuscitate it. Celeste, thank you for joining us. You can find that story on JAXA as well as the graphic on the Olympics over at nature.com forward slash news. And that's all for this week. If you want to help the show get into the ears of even more science fans, don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. 